Ralph Waldo Emerson, you ever heard of him? 1800s writer and poet, he famously said this. He said, it's not the destination, it's the journey. You get it? It's something we kind of get. Life is mostly about the in-between parts. We have celebrations like this. We have baptisms. We have people born, people get married. I I officiated a wedding yesterday. There's these like kind of highlights, these watermark points, but most of life is the in-between. Most of life is the journey. I, I read a book where an author said it's the, it's the, uh, the space between the edges. <laughs> um, and that's the journey that we go through. We are continuing today in our Let's Open the Bible series, and we have this like ridiculous goal that no one made us do, but we decided to do it because we're crazy. We're going through the entire Bible in just five weeks. And so far, we have gone through 12 chapters. And that's pretty good, except for there's like over 1,800 chapters in the Bible. So we've got a long way left to go. And so today, as we kind of keep going in, in the Bible, um, it's the concept of the journey that we're gonna focus on. Uh, each week, we're gonna have a different word to identify a chunk of the Bible. Last week was beginnings. And we talked about the beginnings in the Bible. God uh, created the world. That's the claim of the Bible. And then from that, we saw the beginnings of humanity and a lot of things. Then we saw the beginnings of sin in the world which that was a sad moment, and that's when everything kind of shifts. But then we also see the beginnings of God's plan to redeem the world. And that began uh, with a statement that was made in Genesis chapter 3, but then we went all the way to Genesis chapter 12 where we meet a guy named Abraham, and some stuff starts from there. We're going to get back to Abraham in just a minute, but today's word, if this last week's word was beginnings, today's word is journey. Because the next big chunk of the Bible is basically this huge journey. Most of life is a journey. If you've ever been on a road trip with friends, you know that it's in the journey that you really get to know people, right? It's like, I thought I knew you until I was stuck in a car for 10 hours with you. If you've ever been, like if you you were fly on the the window uh, in my car when my family's taking a family road trip, you would learn a lot about my family. You would learn that my wife prefers to drive. You would love that. You would learn that I like listen to, uh, I love listening to any kind of music and all kinds of music nonstop, even though my kids are like, can we do something different? Uh, you would learn that my kids love to reach over the middle and touch their sibling. And I don't know why, and would you stop touching your sibling because I'm going to freak out if you don't stop touching your sibling. Stop touching your sibling. You also learn that we learn patience on our road trips. Uh, you will learn that uh, my daughter has to pee, like all the time. We got, it's like, and, and, and I, I got a, a secret. This is my secret. Uh, I think she's in here. I'm not sure if she's, she might be back there right now. The, the secret is I'm glad she does because I also have to pee, but I get to blame it on her. So uh, that's, you learn a lot about people on, on the road trips. You can learn a lot about life when you're on the journey. And so it's no surprise to me that when I look at the Bible and I see the vast majority of the story of what God's doing in the world, it's like this journey. And we hop kind of in this proverbial car with this family. And we take a trip for like 4,000 years. And we see a lot of ebbs and flows, and it's a roller coaster, and there's a lot going on. So grab your Bibles today. We love to look to the Bible for God's most important truth. And um, if you don't have a Bible with you today, feel free to grab the one off the internet. The YouVersion Bible app is fantastic. Uh, the Wi-Fi in here is decent. If you want a paper Bible, we love to have uh, people grab Bibles for free. Right here at the door, there's a little shelf. I, I made the promise. I'm going to try to keep it. I'm going to actually use my paper Bible uh, for this series, and I want to encourage everybody to bring theirs for the whole series. We need to be in the Bible. Um, Normally, I'll tell you the passage to turn to, and we're going to start back in Genesis 12 again, if you want to go and turn there. It's the very first book of the Bible, but we're going to do something we haven't done in a while, and I actually want you to flip even sooner in your Bible to the table of contents. Um, If you're not good at your books of the Bible, you probably use this if you ever have to look something up. 
the table of contents is a really good guide to what's in the Bible, and we're going to use this as a bit of a map to get us through the Old Testament today, because it's a lot. I mean, if you see that, there's a lot. There's 66 books in the whole Bible, and, uh, you know, we got a lot to get through. We got a lot to get through, but I think we kind of have a map to guide us that's really going to guide us uh, evil, e- uh, easily. When we talk about the Bible, we talk about two major divisions. The Old Testament, which is a little more than two-thirds of the Bible, and this is the section that we're discussing today. We're doing the entire Old Testament in one day. Yes, it's crazy. And then there is the New Testament at the end. The the New Testament is the section where Jesus comes into the picture and we see the church established and the early parts of of the church. So we'll get there actually starting next week. But in the Old Testament, uh, there's still a lot. There's a whole lot. And I found that it's it's good to have some divisions in your brain. So as you look through the table of contents, you'll find uh, all these books, and they're in order according to the way they are in in the the book there. This is pretty cool. The Old Testament of the the Bible is actually the Bible that, like, Jesus would have had growing up. They they had the Jewish scriptures. And so the uh, Old Testament of our Christian Bibles is... Very much, it's just a reorganization of the exact same books that the the Jewish people would use for their holy text. We start with the first five, and the first five are generally called the law. The law. These are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, generally attributed to being written by Moses, and we're going to touch on him in just a second. And this is where they get their rules for how the the nation of Israel is supposed to function and how they do things on a day-to-day. The next section is a big section. We call it history. And the books of history are just that. They're the history of the Jewish nation. So we get Joshua and Judges and Ruth, uh, and they tell about a time before the nation had a king, a formal king. But then we get some kings. And so in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, these are the histories of the nation while they had kings. And, uh, and then after that is another period of history. And there's a period where they actually end up in exile. The Babylonians kind of take over. They rock, they rock the, the, or they, 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 what do you call it? They wreck the house and they bring some people over to Babylon actually for 70 years. And there's a whole period of history there. And we see Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther as kind of in that, that category. They actually happen near the end of that. Um, so that's the history section. The next section, as you keep going, is, is poetry. And these are more poetic language. And so in there, we've got Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. Uh, these are various things. They're poetry. Uh, the Jews would use these, a lot of these things as kind of their hymn book. Like, these are the songs of worship they would use. Or as they were traveling along, they would recite these things and, uh, like poetry. It'd be fun. Some of this stuff does contain some history, the poetry section, but it's in a poetical form, uh, some teaching things. Um, and so in the last section of the Old Testament is prophecy. Okay, the, the prophets, there are 17 books of prophecy. Uh, some are pretty short. A couple of them are pretty long. And the, the big picture of the prophets is this. The prophets in ancient... Jewish times, these guys were basically, they were basically the, the pastors, the teachers of the people. Uh, not so much as you think about a preacher at a church today, but these guys were getting direct messages from God, and they were declaring them to the people, and I, I can summarize most of it. Most of the prophet says this, what are you doing? Turn back to God. Like, that's pretty much the summary of the last part of the Old Testament. And all the prophets, they kind of overlay the histories. So as a different king comes, new prophets are born and die just like kings, and so the prophets overlay the histories. That's the Old Testament. But here's the deal. And one thing I want us to understand from this whole series is that the Bible is not a book of facts and figures. You might have grown up in church and learned that the most important thing I can do is memorize this thing so that I can win the memorizing bee. Uh, and, and, or that I can say the, uh, you know, the books of the Bible faster than anybody else, or I know all the different things in the Bible, and that's cool. The information is cool, but this is a story about God's love 
and plan for redemption of the world, okay? It happens in an ancient culture, a foreign people to us. We don't get a lot of the things that they do. We're like, why do they do that for? It's because it was different people. But the story, it, it transcends the narrative. And so as we kind of get into this today, what I want to do is, uh, is look at that story. I also want to give you a resource. There's a great website called The Bible Project, Bible, thebibleproject.com. Uh, and I would encourage you, I think we've got a slide up here, maybe we've got some uh, images. Uh, but the whole idea of The Bible Project is they have these really good theologians. They're very smart. Uh, I endorse them if you care about that. They're really good and they've got great uh, viewpoints on things. They've also partnered with some animation people uh, and there are videos. I mean tons of videos and they've been, they're about five minutes long each and whatever you want to study in the Bible, if you don't have a starting point, I would recommend you get on Google, you type that subject, you type, uh, I don't know, uh, you want to study the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Ecclesiastes, the Bible project. And then the video that pops up is probably the one you want to start with because they do a really good job. They start on a base level, but it's like seminary level content and it's really well done. This is a great place to start. And so just pick a, pick a topic, dig in, it's great. All right, so that's just a resource. But what I want to do is get into this journey, okay? So we're going to get into this, this road trip with this family. We started with a guy named Abraham and let's back up to last week very quickly. Our, week, our word last week was beginnings. Okay, and we see that God creates mankind in his image and he loves them and he's got a plan for them. But then we see there's this moment of temptation and failure and they sin and, you know, kind of all hell breaks loose and they get kicked out of the garden and this is a sad moment. But God has a plan. He wants to redeem mankind and set into motion. So he chooses this guy named Abram. We also will find him called Abraham, same guy. And we kind of meet part of his narrative in Genesis chapter 12. We read this last week, verses 1 through 3, but I want to read it again because this sets off a, a chain reaction, a domino effect of promises that God's going to answer. Let's look at Genesis 12, starting at verse 1. The Lord had to Ab said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And the peoples of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, will be blessed through you. What a promise. I, this is a great promise. God's saying, listen, the whole world's gonna be blessed through you, Abraham. And Abraham's like, I don't see how it's possible because I don't have any kids. I don't know what you mean by blessing them through my family line because there is no family line. It's just me and my wife and we're really old. They were at the time. And there was really no prospect of them having any kids at this point. But God shows up in a major way. For the rest of the book of Genesis, we're gonna follow the story of Abraham's family. And uh, so, just to, just to barrel through it, it, I gotta tell you what, it's hard to put uh, 4,000 years of history into about 20 minutes, but we're about to get there. So we're on the road trip. You want to put on your seatbelt, okay? You want to get like an extra beverage and, uh, and a snack because this is going to be a journey. But stick with me because you can hang. I, I trust you. I believe in you. Okay, Abraham eventually does have a son, Isaac is his name. God blesses him and makes him. Now, here's the thing. Oh, I got to back up. Abraham's family, Abraham's family is all jacked up. You got to know that from the start because if I start and you were like, Abraham, he's this great saint of a man. He probably has paintings with halos around his head. I think he does. The truth about Abraham is that this guy and his family were, they put the dysfunction in dysfunctional family. They are messed up. And each generation has their new brand of dysfunction. And so as you read through the Old Testament, especially if you've never read it before, you're like, this is not what I expected at all. <laughs> this is not at all what I thought the Bible would be. For me, that is a huge uh, evidence that it's somewhat believable. 
If someone was gonna sit down and make up a religion and then write a book about why you should believe it, they would probably avoid a lot of this controversial, ridiculous stuff. But there's stuff in here you can't avoid. It's like, this is, that was bad. That guy, this is what we learned from that. Probably my favorite lesson in the entire Bible is that God, if you got a pen, you wanna write this down. If God, that God specializes in using broken people and giving them purpose. He's gonna take this dysfunctional family and we're gonna see history play out. And he's gonna say, I can use you. I can give you purpose in this world. Okay, so now, let's speed through his family history. Isaac does have a son. His name is Isaac. Uh, there's a whole situation there where Abram doesn't want to have, doesn't think they're ever going to have a son with his wife, so he ends up having a child with his servant, and that seems like a great solution. It's not. It ends up being a big chaos, but Isaac eventually grows up and turns out to a pretty good guy. He has two sons. They're twins, Jacob and Esau. Maybe if you watch the show Lost, you remember them. They're not from that show. They actually came from this, uh, this, uh, this part of the Bible. Jacob and Esau, they have their own quarrels. They... they, they Jacob steals his brother's birthright, which I don't even know how you do that, but in an ancient culture, it was, it was possible. So he's not even the oldest son, but he becomes the heir to his dad's stuff. They do end up making up, but it's because Jacob hides for like a couple decades because he's afraid Esau is going to kill him. But they eventually make up. Jacob has this moment with God as he kind of is growing up, and God kind of appears to him, and Jacob does this crazy thing. He, he's trying to like wrestle with God or an angel or some kind of angelic being. That's a cool story. And at the end of the thing, God renames Jacob, gives him a new name. You know what his new name was? Israel, hence the nation of Israel. And it all begins with that seed and that promise. And every generation that comes down, God comes down and he takes the same problem that he gave, promise that he gave to Abram and he gives it to the next generation. I'm going to bless the world through your family. The whole world's gonna be blessed. The whole world's gonna be blessed. And the trouble continues. Jacob has 12 sons. I've got a son and a daughter you guys who have multiple kids beyond two, I like, I just, I should pray for you more often. This guy's got 12 sons. And there comes to this point where one of them, his name is, is Joseph, and he turns out to be the favorite, and all the older brothers hate him. So they conspire to fake his death and sell him into slavery. Like if your little, if your big brother like thumped you in the nose in the crib, you had it easy. This dude gets sold into slavery, okay? He ends up in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, he ends up in trouble. He gets framed for a crime. He gets thrown in jail. But God never leaves him. God ends up showing up, and, and, and it's a long story. We're actually going to do a whole series of the life of Joseph in a few months from now, so I'm looking forward to that. But God shows up in a major way, and Joseph ends up kind of being promoted from jail all the way to being the second most influential and powerful man in Egypt, which was the biggest nation in the world at the time. And through his influence, saves thousands of countless lives because of some preparations he makes for a famine. And in the process... His brothers find out that he's like in charge now, so they're like, we're sorry, my bad. And they're like, come on in. And the whole family moves to Egypt. This is a major transition for Abraham's family journey because now they've moved from where they were to Egypt. Now, we're gonna finally get back into the Bible again. We're gonna look at Genesis chapter 20. This is in the very last chapter of Genesis, and this is the end of Joseph's story. And I love this. In Genesis chapter, sorry, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, this is Joseph talking to his brothers. And he says, listen, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done in the saving of many lives. We find in Joseph this perspective, that even in the messed up, crazy dysfunction, God has purpose. Not that he causes the pain, 
I don't want to downplay pain or harshness or whatever. But even through the pain, even through the hurt, God can step in and be like, look, I can make something good out of this. Will you turn to me? And his family does. But then time marches on. We get to the book of Exodus. Remember, we were looking through the table of contents. This is the second book of the Bible. And in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 6, something happens. A big thing happens. It says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increasing in number and becoming so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So this thing happens. The nation of Israel becomes a thing. It's huge. The Egyptians say, uh-uh, and they make them slaves. And for 400 years, this family road trip just camps out in Egypt under oppression and under pain and under struggle. You know, a lot of times when we're in the middle, in the middle of a struggle, it's hard for us to f- see why. And I'm gonna tell you, I don't know why. I don't know why God allows pain. I don't know why he allows struggling. I, I know that apparently he does. I also know that God is real because of just experiences I've had in my life. And, but I step back and I look at this and, and I, I wanna make some sense of it. I don't know the answer to the question Why did God let Israel struggle for 400 years in slavery? That's a long time. I don't know why. But I got an idea. This is it. It starts like this. Uh, My family, we have chickens. We got five chickens. Uh, They lay eggs. We eat eggs. It's a great arrangement. Um, And uh, we have chickens, but one thing I've learned about chickens is that um, they come from eggs. And (laughs) when you have a baby chicken in an egg and it begins to hatch, uh, it's a struggle for that little chick. You might know this, but you know, when, when, if you ever encounter a baby chicken hatching out of an egg and it looks like he's struggling, you're not supposed to help it. It's vital to the life of that chicken that it fights its way out of that egg. I read a couple of blogs about it this week just to see if it was an old wives' tale, and it seems that that's, it's pretty true. You gotta let the thing fight. You gotta let it struggle. And they say the ones that you uh, hatch out, help them hatch out, they often will develop disabilities and they don't have the muscle strength. And apparently there's something that happens in that struggle that allows them to get through what's next. Now, I don't know if this is, I don't want to downplay struggle. I don't want to downplay pain. I know this, you, you, you may have been through some really bad stuff. What I do know is that God is right there. And that sometimes I think he just stands there and he watches us while we try to break out of the egg. Because he knows that on the other side of that, we can have the strength to move on. And for 400 years, the Israelites suffer under the hands of the Egyptians. I think it might be because God knew that they needed a context under which they could say, we have no power. We have no ability of our own. We have no leg to stand on. But God is there. Because that's what they're going to find. What God does in the book of Exodus is we see him call up a deliverer named Moses. And Moses comes in and through an unimaginable series of miracles, it's amazing, God delivers these, these Israelite slaves from the Egyptians. And just to give you some context, we believe there were over a million Israelites at this time. This is a significant group of people. 
And they get released from Egypt uh, basically without lifting a hand, hardly. It's a crazy story. And they end up free. And then they begin kind of a, a process that we're going to get into now. Um, they get out on their own, and then they find something vital. They are homeless. They have no place to call their home. Other nations, as they grew and took over land, and you know how it is, grandma and grandpa buy a couple acres of land, and then we give an acre to Jimmy John and Sue and everybody else. And They didn't have any of that. They walked out with some treasures from Egypt, but nothing else. So the rest of the books of the Old Testament are the story of what's next? And in this thing, I found that the easiest way to track along is to ask yourself a simple question. Who is in charge of Israel right now? If you can answer the question, who is in charge of Israel right now? You can find yourself on the timeline pretty quickly, okay? So it starts out with Moses. Moses gets them out there. God does an amazing thing with Moses. He shows him uh, the law. God actually brings his presence down onto a mountaintop, and, and it's amazing, and the people are terrified, and Moses goes up, and he receives the law. God etches 10 of the commandments into stone. Uh, that's pretty crazy, and they carried those with them, and we know of the 10 commandments. You've probably heard of those, but then there's over 600 other laws that God establishes to kind of run this nation and kind of rule things, and Moses is in charge, and for about 40 years after that, the Israelites kind of find themselves wandering in the wilderness. But God has a promise for them. He says, I've got a land I'm going to give to you. So the next guy that's in charge is a guy named Joshua. Joshua is a protege of Moses's, and he takes over, and God gives this charge to Moses. He says, listen, there's a land over there. Now, here's the thing. You can have that land. The problem is some other people live there right now, and I have found them to be extremely evil. These people were sacrificing their children to idols. They were, you should just study the, the background of the Canaanite people. And so God comes into Joshua and says, I want you to take this nation that's been wandering for 40 years and has found some of their own style and their own independence, and I want you to go over there and take that land. The book of Joshua is a hard book to read for a modern American because we don't like war. We don't like killing stuff. And I'm going to tell you what, it is rated R. I mean, it's... Death after death after death after death. And people have a hard time reconciling that with the loving, gentle, peacemaking Jesus of the New Testament. Is this the same God? I'll tell you this. It is. It is the same God. The wrath of God doesn't ever go anywhere. It's just that through Jesus, we have someone else to take the wrath. And that's Jesus. That's deep theology. I won't go any deeper into that. We can talk about it later if you want to. But there is, there is a juxtaposition of what happens in Joshua and what seems to happen in the church. But it seems that what God is allowing is that the Israelite nation is being used to judge the Canaanites. And just so that it's fair, later God's going to use some other nations to judge the Israelites. So it goes both ways. This is also a different culture. This is a culture of dog eat dog. I mean, there was, everybody was killing everybody back then. Um, so I'm not going to make apologies for it. But Joshua's in charge. And eventually they do take the land of Canaan. They call it the promised land. And they end up there. That's the book of Joshua. Next up, we get the book of Judges. Who's in charge? A bunch of people. They're called the Judges. And so now we're kind of in this militia state. The nation has kind of got a place, but they don't have really a formal government set up very much. And so uh, God, because they have this land, these other nations, they, they want the land too. So they just keep attacking the Israelites from all sides. And so God continually raises up these military leaders to teach them how to fight and to protect them and to do all kinds of things. But these military leaders, for the most part, are God-honoring people. And what they want to do is to, to look at the law of Moses and to understand the plan of God and to do their best to teach the people. And there's some bad examples, like this guy named Samson, who was 
a complete bad person. I have found no redeeming factors of the story of Samson. Somehow he's one of the most famous people in the Bible. Uh, but he's just a bad guy. Bad guy. But there's all the really good people who rise up, like Gideon and others, who just trust God. And over and over and over again, we see that God delivers them. Like the chicken in the egg, God is standing in, but now he's coming in near the end phase and saying, okay, let's move the shell away just a little bit. Let's let you breathe. Let's let you get on your feet. Let's start to feed you. Let's start to help you grow. And we see through this section a series of events. It's a cycle. And this is a cycle that's been said in a lot of different ways, but I find it in four parts. The cycle that we find ourselves in is that in the very beginning, the people find themselves stuck and crying out to God. Stuck and crying out to God. And that's where they find them in, in, in Egypt. That's where Joseph was when his brother sold him into slavery. That's later where we find themselves. That 40 years that they wandered with Moses, they were, they were stuck. There was a whole different story there. All the different times the different armies are attacking them while Joshua was there and the, the judges are around. They're stuck and they're crying out to God. But God sends deliverance. Whether it was through Moses or whether it was through uh, Joshua or a judge or some other prophet that comes through, a deliverer comes through. God, so guess what happens? The people return to God. We're like, oh yeah, there you are. I'm on your team again. And so then you know what happens? The people get complacent and they turn away from God. Guess where that finds them? Stuck and crying out to God. Is it just me or does this sound super familiar? Like this is our life, guys. We're like, man, Lord, if you will save me from this, I will do anything. I'll never cuss again. I'll only chew sugar-free gum, like whatever you want. And then he's like, okay. And you're like, oh, God is good. And you're in church. You're like, blah. I don't even know why I'm raising my hand, but it feels so good. And then you're like, this is good. And then you settle right back into the old mess. I'm not talking to y'all. I'm talking to me. So I'm talking to me over here. And God says, all right, you want to be stuck? Be stuck. And we call out to him again. And then, and then guess what? He's still right there. 4,000 years of Israelite history, if there's one lesson we can learn, is that God never leaves these people. And people call this the cycle of sin. I've been re-educated recently. This is not the cycle of sin. This is the cycle of redemption. This is God coming in and saying, you screwed up again? Well, I knew you were going to do that, but I'm right here if you want me. And over and over, he steps into the lives of these people, and he shows them the way. And throughout the judges and throughout the rest of the history, God's promises to bless the whole world start to fade into the background of the memories of the people. Because now we're a nation. I mean, Abraham was cool. That's a fairy tale my grandma used to tell, that kind of stuff. But... We need to get business now. We need to get serious. And so the Israelites, as they grow, they start to say, we need a king. All the other nations have kings. We need a king. God doesn't want it, but he allows it. We could talk a lot about the kings. I want to focus in on one, the second king. His name was David. We're going to look at scripture again, and we're going to find, um, we're going to find David's story. Uh, let's just read this and, and then see where it goes. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 11, the second half of verse 11. It says, the Lord declares to you, this is, this is a prophet, uh, Nathan, I think, talking to David, okay? 
The, door, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. If you're a king, that's a big deal. You want a house. You want a dynasty. You want to be around for a while. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish a kingdom, his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, that's the guy who was king before David, and that didn't end well. Saul didn't turn his heart to God. Whom I removed before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. If you're a king, this is what you want to hear. That's why kings build these giant golden monoliths and statues and pyramids and castles. And they don't build it because they're like, they, they, they need more square footage to house stuff in. Like they do that too. But they build it because they, they're like, when I'm dead, I want there to be a 40 foot tall statue of my face at the front of the city so no one forgets me. And God tells David, I'm going to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever. And then you know what happens immediately after that? David's sons are ridiculous. His immediate son, his grandsons, his grandsons split the kingdom. They end up being like almost a civil war thing, and there's a north and a south, and it's, it's insane. And then time after time, you can read it through all those books about the kings. When they introduce a new king, almost all of them start like this. And so-and-so became king, and he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than even his father before him. And then this guy became the king, and he did even more evil in the eyes of the Lord than this guy that came before him. It's like... And I see the promise to David, and I'm like, what? I thought you were going to establish a king. I thought you were going to make it a king that endures forever. And he said, no, no, no. What I said was, I will punish them if they need to be punished. I will bless them when they need to be blessed. But through your family, I'm going to bless the whole world. This is where it's going to end up going. The kingdom eventually falls. 21 kings later, I think, if I remember right, the Assyrians come in. The Assyrians were taking over the map at the time. And they held out pretty good. There was a king named Hezekiah. Actually, I believe Hezekiah was the best king ever in the Old Testament. I think he was, I mean, it says he was greater than David. He, he turned the whole nation back from paganism and all kinds of crazy stuff. They had turned the temple of God into a house of prostitution for one thing. And like, there was a lot of other things. And like, all kinds of stuff. And then Hezekiah comes around. He cleans up shop. But then Hezekiah dies. And then his sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, they ruin everything again. And eventually the Assyrians come in and they, and they wipe them out. The Assyrians get taken over by the Babylonians. When the Babylonians get into power, they take a bunch of Jews, the brightest and the strongest and the smartest, and they cart them off to Babylon. And this becomes that 70-year period of exile. And you gotta imagine if you're a Jew, these aren't the Jews of Abram's family. These are the Jews that grew up in the promised land. They're like 30, 40 generations in. And you think everything's been taken away. Like our homeland is gone. There's nothing left. 70 years goes by. There's some prophets. There's some stories. It's great. But God has never left them. And in the most unlikely way, God delivers these guys. Check this out. This is in 2 Chronicles. Uh, chapter 36, starting at verse 22. Check this out. Okay, in the past, God has spoken to like Abraham. He's speaking to Moses. He's talking to all these people who are at least on his page. We meet a guy named Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia. The Persians won after the Babylonians won. It just continues to grow from there. Other countries become in charge. And in verse 22, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, 
That's another prophet in the Old Testament. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. And this is the proclamation. This is a pagan king. This is the king that I don't think ever really turned his heart to God. God's going to use him. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. Imagine a guy with a really bad haircut sitting on a big white horse with a scroll, and he's reading it. Okay, this, this is kind of what's going on. Driving village to village, he's reading this proclamation. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. That's the old capital of, that's where David lived. That's where the Jews made their headquarters. And of his people among you, may go up, sorry, any of his people among you may go up and may the Lord, their God, be with them. This proclamation sets them free. Cyrus, this king of Persia, this pagan guy who I don't know ever turned his heart back to God or to God in the first place, God is always there. And there was a period where he needed to step in and say, listen, you guys are getting out of hand. How about we get you back under control for a minute? And he pulls them in. They go back. They rebuild their wall. They rebuild the temple. And they establish the world that eventually Jesus would be born into. When we read the New Testament and we see the Jerusalem that exists there, and we see the the surrounding nation, Judah, and the northern region, which is then called Galilee, and we see even the Samaritans. You remember the stories of the Samaritans? There was this big racism between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's because during that time where they were away, a lot of the Assyrians and the other former Canaanite nations kind of moved in, and they intermingled with some of the Jews that were left behind. They created this pseudo-Judaism that was very close to Judaism, but it wasn't Christ, and there was quite there, and there was this racism there. All of that that we see in the New Testament, all of that comes out of the bones of this road trip this journey that God allows the nation of Israel to go on, I believe to prepare them for the day when he would come to the world as a human baby, that he would live among the people, that he would experience joy and pain, gladness and sorrow. He would eventually make the decision to give his life on a Roman cross, die, and then prove that he has got in the flesh by rising from the dead. And over 500 people would see him in person and bear eyewitness testimony, and we have them in here and in other places. And that from that place, from that place, God, I don't know how it works in heaven. Like, I don't know if David's up there, like in heaven, like hanging out with God. I don't think that's exactly how it works, but I think that's how we like to imagine it. Maybe it is. And that God... Gives a little nudge to David and says, look down there, you see that guy? See Jesus? Which must have been weird because Jesus is also God, so it's kind of like a mirror, I don't know. He says, watch this. We get to Philippians chapter two. This is after the, this is after the death on the cross. This is after the resurrection. It says, Philippians chapter two, starting at verse uh, nine, and I don't think it's gonna be on the screen. It says, therefore, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And through Jesus, though the people who lived on earth in Jesus' time really tried hard to make him the king, like they wanted to put a crown on his head and a scepter and get him into a, a castle and help him rule so they could like beat the Romans and all this kind of stuff, 
God said, no, that's not how this kingdom's going to work anymore. I'm going to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever. A name that is above every name. And that every nation on earth will one day, either willingly or against their will, will go down on one knee. Or maybe two knees. Or maybe with their face to the ground. And they'll acknowledge that Jesus is the new king. And that's 4,000 years of history. And that's the journey. That's where we end today. As we close out, I just got to ask a couple questions. Um, Each one of us needs to kind of reflect. Here's the questions. How am I like the nation of Israel? I mean, I think the nation of Israel is like this macrocosm of, of the microcosm that is our life. This cycle, this up and down, this needing to break out of the shell, like the struggle, like all that. How am I like the nation of Israel? What has my cycle with God been like is another question. Like, look back, play it back. Sometimes my cycles are like a week long, three days, you know? And then you look like the big cycle. What, what has it been like? Am I rebelling? Am I stuck and crying out to God? And do I know that God has sent deliverance? Here's a spoiler. The promise that God made to King David has already come true. This afternoon, after we finish this service today, we're going to take two people over to our pool, and we're going to baptize them in the name of King Jesus. They're going to become new citizens of that kingdom. They're going to start a new, a new system where they say, you know, he's my Lord. He's who I turn to. He's where I go. He's the knee that I take. He's the humility that I choose. If you're here for the first time, maybe you're checking out church. Maybe it's been a while. I don't know, since you've been at church. I don't know. I want you to know, like, there's no, like, immediate rush right now. No one here is going to beat you in the head with a Bible, throw some at you. Uh, I want to invite you to come back next week. Stick around. Hear the story some more. Maybe what you need to hear is that there are good people in the church. There are good people in the kingdom. Uh, There are good things that can come from this. Stick around. In a a minute, maybe you want to talk to somebody. We've got some people that would love to talk to you. The the, the second thing is maybe you have been in the kingdom for a little while. Like, you you decided, I want to be a Christian. You've accepted Jesus, you've been baptized into his name, you're trying your best to leave, but you're more like the Israelites in the cycle, right? And in this next few moments, what I want to encourage you to do is just kind of bend the knee, bend the knee, and make Jesus king again over and over, because God has never left you. His grace is sufficient. That's the journey. That's the whole testament. Let's pray.